This is Live at Politics and Prose, a program from Slate and Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington, D.C., featuring some of today's best writers and top thinkers. All right, so let's get to it. So I'm excited to um, introduce Danielle Clayton, and she'll be in conversation with Jen Jason Reynolds tonight to talk about the bells. So they are both natives to this area, um, both native Marylanders, correct? Mm -hmm. Yes. All right. So Danielle Clayton is not only the author of three books, but also the COO of the nonprofit, We Need Diverse Books. She is also the co-founder of Cake Literacy, which focuses on publishing diverse children, teens, and women's literature. Her commitment to diversity can be seen throughout her written works and by helping other authors um, with her editing skills. Um, that focus on, to help focus on communities of color. Uh, Jason Reynolds graduated from the University of Maryland and since then has authored five best-selling novels to include his latest novel, Long Way Down. And according to him, his only plan is to not write boring books. So please give them a That's warm it. welcome. <laughs> um. So it's you know I guess I'm supposed to be moderating this thing. It's always interesting when they tell you to tape and things get automatically uh, far more anxious for those of us who are up here, right? <laughs> uh, nonetheless, I am I'm Jason, and I, I just want to make sure we know that I, for me at least we're here to celebrate the release of the bells. I know that you know I've got some books out, but tonight is not my night. Uh, tonight we're here to celebrate Danielle, so just so we clear, right? <laughs> set, set some ground, set some ground rules. Um, Whatever. Celebrate Danielle. So, so here's the thing, though. Before we jump into it, anybody who knows me knows I'd like to be as honest as possible. So the thing is, Danielle, publicist, ain't send me the book. <laughs> She's your publicist too. She is my publicist for one of my books, so. but she's more your publicist. So, so she didn't send me the book until like three days ago, and the book is two million pages. So, <laughs> so I read some of it. I read it. I read as much as I could. But I just that's good know, enough, you know. And so we're gonna have a discussion around this book. But it's not like I could. It's not like I could come and like tell you all about the book because then there's no reason for you to buy it anyway. And so and so we'll make sure that we have a healthy conversation about about the themes and about all these other things. Um, but to start, because I didn't read it, because I haven't read it, I've started it, um, and I plan on finishing it. Thanks we'll to your publicist. <laughs> um, why don't you Ooh, give Mads us? Why don't you get? Mesno's knows what she did, right? Or what she didn't do? Why, why don't? Why don't? Why don't you give us? Um, just so we can start, so we can get some grounding and some footing, because not everybody knows, right? So right. we get some footing. Give us sort of the overview of what the bells. The funny, because I want to say the bells are, but the bells is about. You know. Bad grammar. Um, so the way I pitch it to kids is that it's like Scott Westerfeld's Uglies. I don't know if many of you have read that series, but set in like Marie Antoinette's court. It's set in a world where everyone's born looking degenerative and sort of gross, but there are these women called the bells that can change you down to your bones for the right price. I wanted to deal with um, some of the anxieties I had when I was 12 and 13 about what I looked like and if I had the opportunity to try on different looks and change my hair, my skin, my eyes, my facial shape, my body, my height, everything. And I wanted to build a world around sort of that premise that you can change everything, your personality as well. So let's talk, I mean, look, 
those of us who write books knows that that especially if you're writing a book like this, which is taking place in an is this an alternate? Yeah. So here's the other thing about me you should know. I don't know a lot about fantasy. I don't know why Danielle asked yeah. me to host. This thing. I don't know a lot about fantasy. I wanted to torture uh, him you know, because I, he does not I, I read genre. So so because of that, I, I also have some questions, right? So uh, is this considered an alternate reality, or is this? Uh, I like the this vocabulary. What's the, what's the one that everybody's doing? The um, dystopian. There you go. Is this is this dystopian? No, because to have a dystopia, you have to have a utopia. So this is a secondary world. It's not our world. It's completely different, like Game of Thrones. But there are elements. Are there? So so I read this thing recently. Um, I read this thing from Holly Black. Do you guys know Holly Black? Ooh, so, if you okay. don't know her, you need to know so, her. I, I read, so there's an incredible lecture that Holly Black has given around the rules, the rules of fantasy, right? Like this is how you, like these are the rules that one must have in a fantasy novel. And it's, have you read this? Oh, oh yeah. You heard this, this speech. And she it's a, taught it, me how to write. It's really incredible. And I, any, any of you writers in the crowd who want to write this kind of work, I think it would be really helpful for you. Um, and, and one of the things she says at the end is that basically your fantastic world is not at all like you're writing about a world that does not exist except you aren't. Right? Like that's always the point. That it is never, this is never about the thing that it's about. It's always about our world, our lives, right? Shrouded in sort of new elements and, and fantastic sort of components, but this is about our world. This seems obvious. Mm -hmm. And so my question to you is, is it actually that obvious? And what are some of the nuances? Because I think, because I think that when it comes to young adult literature, when it comes to young adult, uh, when it comes to young adult genre writing, young adult contemporary writing, there's all this hubbub about young adult work not being sophisticated enough, um, which of course, those of us who write it and work in this world knows is nonsense. Uh, and is really sort of silly and, and you know, stupid. Mm -hmm. um, and so my question to you is, what are some of the nuances that you were really trying to get at? What are um, some of the comparisons and the analogies between the world that you created, the world that we live in? Um, what's what's the obvious, what are the obvious sort of things? And what are the things that some of us may be like, oh, that's actually an interesting thing to think about that it may not be so obvious? Your questions are hard. Um, um, well, the obvious thing is that I'm writing about plastic surgery, right? Something in our world that a lot of people do and a lot of teens do and a lot of grown-ups do in order to attain a standard of beauty. I'm also writing about magazines and propaganda around women's bodies and what they should look like and the commodification of women's bodies, how they are sort of um, treated as objects to be consumed and to be talked about and to be measured and weighed and ranked. So those are sort of the obvious things, and I built a world around that. Just I took it out of our real world because I feel like it's sort of easier to talk about those really tough topics. Talking about bodies is really difficult. And if I take it out of our real world context and put it somewhere that's not real, we can sort of lean into the discomfort um, that is placed upon talking about weight and color and race and hair texture and trends and how these things have changed over time. The thing that I would say is nuanced that Justina Ireland is going to get me, so I'm going to out myself before she gets me online, is that I wanted this to... This is being taped, by the way. I know. I'm doing it on purpose because she's like been texting me. She was like, she's like, bitch, you wrote a book about slavery. And I was like, I did, um, but nobody is really talking about that because you get, it's groups of women, it's groups of girls that are sequestered away with their mothers who teach them how to service others. 
and they are almost bought and sold and um, to perform a specific task for a world. And it's based on the economy of that world. I was going to ask about that. I, so I read the first four or five chapters. This is all I could get, I, you know, is all I could get through uh, before this event. And it felt a lot. So I have a few questions. One, why is this, why is it the, the, the world that we exist in in this book is called, I would say Orleans, but Orleans, all right? Get it fancy. I, well, that's what it, I mean, or, Orleans is what it is, but or, or, Orleans. Orleans. Right, exactly. So, it's so French, right? Exactly. So uh, my first question is, given the history of New Orleans, let me not lead you. My, my question is, what exactly, was, was there significance around naming the place Orleans, right? And, and, that was good. That was and, good. And, and, and also, is there, because I, when I was reading it, and you were talking about the slavery, when I was reading it, I, it was really difficult for me to not think about madams. Mm -hmm. And I mean madams in terms of sex work, mm -hmm. but, you know. I hope y'all. This was going to be an honest conversation. I don't. Know. <laughs> but I, I also thought about madams in terms of sex workers and um, the job of a madam uh, or a pimp, for that matter, uh, would be to convince convince the people that work for the madam that what they do is beneficial to society. That what they do is a gift to the world. That they have a that they're doing a service, um, even if that service is hurting them and hurting the people around them, as long as the madam can convince them that this is a service, they're willing to carry that service out. And, and so I was, I, I thought about that. And lastly, um, in the beginning of the book, they, when they're doing all the, they, so there's this big, con, it's, like a, it's like a carnival almost a that carnival. they go to. And they have to, they have to display their skills as, as young women who can make other women beautiful. Yep. How, but, they're, but they're young. Mm -hmm. And so the other question is about children being forced to do these things. I'm trying so hard not to give away the little bit that I do know. <laughs> um, um, Don't spoil it. Um, this book came out of, I was reading about um, the free colored class in New Orleans. And I was reading about these beautiful octroons and quadroons and mulattoes that became the wives, the young wives at 15, 16, 17 of rich white planters. And then I was reading about a lot of brothels and brothel culture in New Orleans and I wanted to do a beauty brothel. And so you sniffed out, sniff, you nailed me, which is annoying. It's really annoying. Um, you and Justina just be getting me, so I can't do nothing. Um, so yeah, I wanted to talk about um, brothels, but I wanted to use beauty as the currency that's traded. And I stumbled upon this weird thing where there were these coins that were found in ancient Greece. And they were coins that were used, that you could only use in brothels. And they featured the sort of the, the sex act. And you had to bring those specific coins to those brothels. And that's the only way that you could buy. I know you know, because <laughs> of your book. Um, that that and I found that nugget and I was like this is interesting what if there's a whole subculture another world another form of currency to be traded for a different set of actions so I found that and that sort of led me to down a rabbit hole and I'm fascinated by New Orleans um, families from Mississippi right next door and I'm fascinated by that culture and the mixing of French and African and indigenous and what came of that and power and blood so those sort of obsessions sort of coalesced and came together um, and showed up in sort of my world building. 
So let's talk about some craft stuff. What? Because I'm, I'm as somebody who doesn't write fantasy, I'm always. And for those of you who don't write fantasy but read it, I'm sure you're also as fascinated as I am by the idea of like world building. Because I, I mean, we all have to world build, right? Every writer has to world build because the world doesn't exist until you put it on the page. Even the world that we live in, right? The famous Hitchcock quote is that a human face is not a face if there's no light on it. Once you put light on it, then it becomes a face. The same goes for the world. Um, and so, I, I guess my question is, when it comes to when it comes to building worlds for you. One, first of all, why why write fantasy? Alternate, re what, are we calling this fantasy? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> this ain't real. I'm learning, man. I'm listening. I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to be as honest. I'm learning. You're going to be writing magic soon. I, I'm working on it. I know. Uh, it's a secret. I'm working on it. <laughs> Sorry. Um, Whoops. It's on camera. What, 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 what why? Um, why magic? Why magic? Why magic and, and, and why magic in this way? I mean, even the language of this, like the way, and you all will see once you start reading it, for those of you who've already read it, you know that the language is super lush, right? It's almost as though, like the language is sort of a lyrical representation of the Florida lease, right? Like it, it literally is the Florida lease, right? Like the language and the way that it's, that the way that it's written, which to me I found uh, intoxicating and you know, I'm hard on everybody. You are. Uh, but I, I found it intoxicating. I found it um, maximal um, in a way that wasn't annoying, right? Sometimes it's like, all right, this is a little masturbatory. <laughs> you know what no, I mean? It's did. like, uh, right? but, I, but I did, I found yeah. it, I found it, um, Deft in an interesting way, and and really, 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 sort of just, it's lovely. The, the language is lovely, uh, and so my question is one: why, why magic? Why fantasy? Why this kind of work? And two, um, talk a bit about the lexicon. I think I think you did some really interesting things language-wise. I'm gonna put my dad on blast. Who's in back in the back with the hat on? Don't hide. <laughs> I grew up taking books off of his bookshelf, and it was all fantasy. It was Dune. It was Asimov. It was Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. And it was comic books every Saturday. And it was The Dark Tower. That's what we heard in the tape, tape decks on the way to school. So magic was always around me. It was something that I was interested in. And all the stories that I read growing up were realistic. There were Mildred Taylor and Walter Dean Myers and our greats, which are wonderful. But I was also looking for the magical versions of them because I wanted to go through the wardrobe into Narnia. I wanted to go to outer space. I wanted to be the princess. I wanted to know what fantasy landscapes looked like with, with brown people in them. And we didn't have them. We had Octavia Butler. But after you read all of her, then I'm, I'm looking for more. I wanted hundreds of those books. So I blame my dad for that, because he was a big fantasy, sci-fi, nerd, comic book head. So. There's that. And then with the lexicon, I did it on purpose. People are lighting me up in my reviews, too. They're like, oh, my gosh, you you know what I mean? This is so lyrical. But it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be thick like pudding. That's what Holly Black taught me how to do. She said you create an atmosphere, and that atmosphere should mirror the things that you're trying to talk about in the world. And I'm trying to talk about consumption and women's bodies being consumed. And so using color and food sort of mirror that. So when you're in it, I want you to fall in it, and you can't sort of escape. Super excessive, like yes. it's it's, it's like it's mad overwritten, right? Yeah. In the best way, right? Like sometimes you, sometimes we have to do that, right? Like there are things that that belong in a sparse space, and there are things that should be luxe and lush and and dense. Um, and, and so I'm really as dense as the gowns that they wear, right? Yeah. I think that's an, an, an important element. Shout out to Pops, by the way. Uh, <laughs> 
my father did not read any of those things. And so, <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and, and I am not the better for it. So, uh, you know, uh, uh, he did other things. Uh, well, you know, I mean, he did do other things. Thanks. You're right. My father did do other things. Mr. Allen. And, uh, <laughs> Uh, 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 true dystopia, right? Yeah. Um, let's talk about blackness. I just feel okay. like we got to jump in there at some point. So let, let's talk uh -oh. about. Let, I mean, you know, <laughs> anyone who's ever been to anything that I've been at, I've been like, here, here it comes. Right? Here it goes. You know, like, I, I just think that we shouldn't skirt around any of that. I think that we should attack those things head on and sort of get at get at the heart of the matter. Yeah. Because um, it does matter that these that the, the characters in this book are brown and are dealing with brownness, mm -hmm. right? Like when we're talking about, it's interesting, right? Because whenever when we're whenever we're talking about like the gradations, this idea that like I want to be darker, I want to be lighter, I want to all of that exists within a brown world. Mm -hmm. Like there is no other world, right? It exists within a anytime there's conversation about colorism, right? It exists, especially when it comes to like, I want to be lighter or darker. That exists within a brown space by proxy. Mm -hmm. It exists within a brown space. And so my question is, besides the obvious fact that you are a brown woman, right? What, like, and and furthermore, when it comes to plastic surgery, so just to make a, a, a final point about this question, when it comes to plastic surgery, it, is, it was assumed and has been assumed for a very, very, very long time up until recently that black people did not get it. That's right. Right? Like the assumption was that black folks did not go under the knife for physical, for physical reasons, right? We went under the knife for health reasons sometimes. Right. <laughs> or we avoided. Even it, right? <laughs> so, so the idea, the idea that, that you're discussing brownness and blackness and perhaps race isn't necessarily... Um, an explicit thing in this novel and in, in this sort of fantastic world, but the fact that you are alluding to blackness and brownness and plastic surgery, which is a very new conversation in our community. For those who don't know, it's a new conversation, and I we used to laugh at y'all like, yo, look at them <laughs> chopping up their bodies, and now and now we're all scratching our head like, oh no, it's seeped in, right? right. Oh no, we're drinking the Kool Aid, right? Yeah. And so I guess my question is like, why? Like, 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 just talk, or rather, let me just say this, let me leave it open. Just talk about that, if you don't mind, sure. a little bit. I think when you're one of the only brown kids and surrounded by white girls, those cultural norms press upon you. So I grew up, where, and you dogged me for it, I grew up in the suburbs, I was the fly in the milk. So I was also influenced by white beauty norms, like all black women are in this country. And I did not want to recreate those norms in this world because we're already terrorized by them in the real world. So I didn't want readers to come to my world and find the same hierarchy where blackness is bad and whiteness is good, but rather those trends change daily and that we are chasing this perfection. Sometimes being brown is in and being black as, as the night sky and blue is most coveted and everyone does it and then other times it's being white as milk but i wanted to lean into the impulse of change because when i was a teenager i had really bad acne and i was willing to do whatever it took to get rid of that and i remember going to dermatologists and then telling me and warning me well we don't really know what these these things do to brown skin you're going to get a keloid or you're going to have hyperpigmentation so i never had doctors that could tell me what would happen to brown skin with all of the medications, with all of the injections. They didn't have the science, they didn't have the research. So I was, 
out there flying blind, trying these products and then having these dark marks and trying to figure out like, oh no, this is not for me. Trying on these instruments of white beauty. And I wanted to take those things and have this conversation with all girls, uh, brown girls included, and put them in the front of it to talk about what we're willing to do to ourselves in order to chase these trends that are meaningless and that, that morph and move. So um, I wanted to talk about race without talking about race and without villainizing or terrorizing people who are already terrorized by Eurocentric beauty standards. So. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah. Do you think that all uh, children's literature needs to have a message? No, I think it needs to be honest. I think it needs to tell the truth. And so when you tell the truth, you impart a message, in my point of view, because you're holding up a mirror to the world or holding up a mirror to yourself. I'm a narcissist, I write about myself, this is my therapy. So I take something that bothers me and I wrap a world around it. My first series, Tiny Pretty Things, is set in a ballet boarding school. It's about perfection and obsession, something that I dealt with in high school. This is also about perfection, but it's also about ambition and wanting to be the best. And I'm a very ambitious person, as you know, but there's such a dark underbelly to being an ambitious woman. Women aren't supposed to be ambitious. They're supposed to be sweet and soft and docile. And I am not any of those things and neither is my character. And I wanted to deal with female spaces and women who are willing to go for everything. And what happens when you do that? Yeah, ladies. Word up. <laughs> what did you learn about yourself when writing this? Because I mean, you know, yep. I mean, you, I mean, all of us in there. There are some some buddies in here who who, who write these books, and there's all, at least for me, there's always something in the process that I learn about me, or that we learn about ourselves, and we're trying to construct these stories that we swear we're going to gift to the world, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, so, what what did you? What surprised you? Or something that you were like, oh snap, I'm. I'm even more of a narcissist than I thought, right? Yeah. I figured out that I'm the villain in my stories. So you haven't met the villain yet. I'm, I'm, getting, I'm getting it. I'm getting it. I figured out that I, take, I took the worst parts of my teenage self, looking at my journals and looking at sort of remembering the things that I used to do, and I, I put it in there. And I figured out that I'm not over any of this stuff. So this body stuff, I'm not over it. So I'm not giving something was like, oh, I put it all in there and then, oh, I'm good now. No, every time I look in the mirror, every time you go past, you're like, ooh, I could go to the gym or ooh, I could get a cream for that. I'm not, and I'm not over it. And so I think I learned that it's really hard when you go, especially to the spa and you take off your clothes and you lay on that table and you see yourself in the mirror and you see all the little lumps and, and things, it's, <coughs> I'm not over it. And I'm a grown-up. Yeah. I'm still the 12-year-old that was figuring out, like, oh, this is what happens to your body as you grow up. This is I'm still not over it. I'm still working it out. I think I think the the secret the secret uh, <laughs> the strange secret that we, we never talk about is that men also feel the same way. Yeah. That young boys also feel the same way. That there's no way for us to know if our bodies are sufficient. Right. And so most of us grow up thinking that they're not or pretending that we know that they are even though we actually don't, right? I was at the doctor yesterday, he told me I was obese. What? Yeah. While your BMI is off? 
Yeah, he they was told like, me that too. He was like, yo, you. He's like, yo, you gotta lose like thirty pounds. I was like, thirty. Yeah, yeah. This happened. Hand to God. This happened yesterday. And the crazy thing, my hand to God. This happened yesterday. Thirty pounds. And I was like, sir. I, look, and 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 so when that happens, look, there, there, are the, the insecure part of me, right? My ego kicks in. It's like, sir. I mean, sir. I'm thirty-four years old. <laughs> I feel like I'm holding on, right? And and then his response was, it doesn't matter. Like you gotta lose thirty pounds. You technically obese. And then the other part of my insecurity kicked in and immediately as you start thinking right about all the things that i have to live with every single day that i never actually have to tell anybody because men in our society are expected to not have any of these issues even though all of us technically do yeah. right all of us do and so if you are a man and you are wondering whether or not this book is for you it is uh, or if you are a young man for that matter or if you are a parent or a teacher and you think this is a book for for young ladies i i think you are sadly and sorely mistaken i think that we need to start using these books to also pick apart some of the toxicity uh, of, of masculinity and the things that so many of us have to carry, right? Women have to carry heavy, heavy weight, uh, most of which we inflict. Men also have to carry the heavy weight, which is why we inflict it, right? It's a transfer of energy. That, that's what's happening, right? And so my, maybe we should start talking about yeah. some of the ugly stuff that we all, I be, you know how many times I'm, I'm always like, y'all wonder if I should shave my chest, right? <laughs> right? Because, and, and you know, it's crazy, right? And, 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 the, and, and the wild thing is, the wild thing is, is that there are men in this room who shave their chests all the time for that very reason. Because every time we turn on the TV or look at ads, I'm right. like, yo, how does man chest look like that? Like, he's, he's 40 years old. I, he got a full beard and no hair nowhere else on his body. <laughs> right? That's real. No, it's, it's real. A real thing. And in the world, there are men that are just as obsessed with their outer forms and go through, she will work on men as well and have these beauty treatments and these beauty, um, sessions with men as well. They are just as neurotic and obsessive about them. But also I wanted to lean into how personality and talent and power are related. So the bells have three things that they can do. They can change your manner, which is your personality and give you a talent. They can also change your body down to your bones, whatever you want. And then they can also erase your age. So the men I wanted to lean into because when I was talking to, hey Russ, <laughs> what happens when you late, bro? Yeah. <laughs> um, I wanted to lean into, I, did a, I asked a lot of friends, a lot of male friends and female friends, what are the things about your body or about yourself that you don't like, that you would change if given the opportunity? And I asked for only three. Women would send me back seven to ten things. <laughs> Men would send me about back five. But on that list of five, Three usually were physical, and then two were related to money or height or um, sort of personality. They wanted to be funny. They wanted to be charming. They wanted to be smart. And those were factored into their visions of themselves. And I found that to be interesting in the way that the two sexes sort of approached this sort of idea of modification. Uh, women would change everything. Everything. Men are liars, by the way. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Stay lying. It's a faulty list. <laughs> That's ridiculous. But I wanted to and lean into true. that, though. Yeah, exactly. Right. Like, I mean, I, I think, I think. I think that's the genius. When you all read it, you'll see. I think that's the genius of the book, right? This idea that like you'll find you'll find your insecurity in there. You're reading. You'll read it and you'll find yourself, right? And I think that's a powerful thing, especially because 
I think this conversation right now is, is more important than perhaps it's ever been. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, because of uh, the new age of social media and technology and the outing of, of ugliness when it comes to all of these things, whether yeah. it be the Me Too movement, whether it be people literally ruining their bodies or, or whether it be butt injections, which are yeah. ruining people or, or I mean, all these sorts of things that are happening all over uh, our country and parts of the world. I think it's, it couldn't be more timely. Yeah, I came from California, from yeah, LA. I was in Miami two days ago. Yeah. And I was like, this is like this a is fantasy novel, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny when you say that because I was walking and nobody walks in LA. I didn't know that, but I was gonna, it's nice, it's 70 degrees. I just got back from New York. I'm walking and this man heckles me and he's like, oh, well, I know your butt is real because you don't have those toothpick, toothpick legs. And I was like, really? Out the car? And then I turn the corner and I see three women with the butt implants and the toothpick legs. And it was like, oh. This sometimes, is interesting. Sometimes you gotta have those 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 both and moments. It's like that brother, you are wrong for harassing me on the street, but you are right. <laughs> and that's what happened. Both I couldn't even right? be mad at exactly. him. I was both like, and, you know what I mean? Um, like, I, before we open it up for questions, because I want to make sure we get uh, everybody's question. Um, let's talk about the book cover, because okay. I think if those of us in the industry and those of us who buy books regularly know how important this is. Right, like this is a big, big deal. This isn't like we shouldn't let this slide. Like it's like, oh, that's a pretty cover. No, no, this is a big deal uh, for a lot of reasons. Um, and so, can you just talk a bit about about the process, about the book cover? Was there pushback? Did you have to fight for this? You know, how, like tell the story. People are fighting for this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was actually scared. I didn't want a brown face on my cover because I thought bigoted buyers would come into the bookstore and say, that's not for my grandchild, that's not for my kid, because that's what happens. That's how racism and bigotry shows up in the economic system. It's like, oh, that's for those kids, not my kid. So when they first showed me mock-ups, I remember whining in your phone about it. I was like, oh no, they're gonna put this girl in a dress. And mind you, the history of that is there's been hundreds of books of white girls in sort of ball gowns but never brown girls in ball gowns. So I was afraid. I was honestly afraid. And then when they brought me in, I got to choose the girl. I wanted the girl with the frizziest hair. And they made the dress for her. I realized that it wasn't about me. It was about everyone who came behind me and the girls that didn't get to see themselves. And my 10, 11, and 12-year-old self that needed to see that so that I could see myself reflected in a fantasy world. Um, so I got over it real quick. And they did an amazing job. This was all Disney. They were like, we're gonna do this. We are going to be the first and we're gonna go big and we're gonna show generation of readers because iconography and images are important. It's just like the image of President Obama is important. It shatters ceilings because it shows you that you can be that. And they wanted to do that for me and they made this book the most beautiful thing that they could do. So. Shout out to Disney. Disney be getting it right sometimes. They do. Know? They got you right with Miles. They got me. They got they, me they right. They got you right. I mean, I, I you know, I, I fight for mine, but they got me right. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> nah, they were good to me. They were good to me. Um, lastly, before we open it up, I just got to say, I'm so happy to read a story about brown people who not poor. <laughs> Shut up. Here we go. I'm just, no, that's real, right? Like, I just, I just am so happy. I think, I think uh, there's enough 
um, I think that we have to continue to look at brown children sort of as polyliths, right? Like the reality is, is that there are a gazillion different versions of the black and brown child, of the child of color. And I think we typically only see them in every iteration of life, whether it be real life or fantastic life or alternative life or dystopian life, we only see them as sort of objects of pain and poverty. Um, this weird sort of pornography that we spin around the black and brown child. So even though these young ladies are not in the best situation, it did me good just to see them all in fancy gowns <laughs> and, and to read about them in sort of an opulent setting. You know, it, all, it's, it feels like they're in like, like all these palatial spaces and all. I mean, it's really something to read. Uh, and it just felt good to know that some little black girl is, is gallivanting around this space doing magic, turning people pretty for better or for worse you know what I'm saying? But, but she ain't broke and i like that no she's not broke and, and i know that's your thing i know you don't like that you know what I mean? here, i'm just saying yeah all right did we go too far he's always giving me the blues <laughs> let, let, let's open it up please put your hands in there let me hear from you How's this yours? don't yeah. be shy please Jennifer. <laughs> Hello, long time listener. Hi. Uh, <laughs> I love you so much. <laughs> I remember reading an article, um, an interview with you, and you said you had a room in your childhood home that was just filled with magazine images of the perfect person you wanted to be, yeah. and you were scared to go back in it. Yeah. Did you go back in that room? No, I haven't, because my mother has put a whole bunch of crap in that closet. <laughs> So yes, in my childhood room, there's like a little reading nook, which I loved when they built the house, they built that for me. You go in the closet and you can push the clothes back and there's like a little door that's the size of a hobbit. And you go in there and there's a little secret room. And I would do a lot of reading and crafts and journaling. But when I turned like 12 and 13, I got obsessed with magazines. And so mom and dad wouldn't let me subscribe to them unless they were highlights. And nobody wants to read highlights when you're like 12. You want to read 17 or Cosmo, even though you don't know anything about those magazines at that time. So I got them from the public library. Ooh, and I cut them up and I returned them. I know. Uh, it was savage. It was bad. And it came back to haunt me because I was a librarian for six years in New York. And those kids stole my books all the time. So just know I got it. I got it back, but I was obsessive, and I would cut out pictures and paste them up of all the people that I thought were beautiful and all of the people that I thought I wanted to be like, and I didn't know that it was Photoshopped. We didn't have the internet. I'm dating myself. Not yet. That dial-up, not yet. So I didn't know. The AOL accounts weren't there. I didn't have any media literacy. I didn't know it was good lighting, and it was airbrushing, and it was Photoshop, and that I thought women's legs looked like that. I thought they were hairless and poreless and their hair was always shiny, and why didn't my puffy hair catch the light? So I was always obsessed with those things, spraying that sun in and like the white girls. Girl, it was rough. But yes, I haven't been back in there only because there's junk in the closet. And I'm a little bit nervous about going in and seeing what, what's still there. I'd like to ask the question. Oh, Dad. <laughs> You've never told me which gives you the most satisfaction, writing a villain or a hero. Okay. Uh, yes. <laughs> um, okay. I'm more interested in villains than heroes. So 
I, and every time I go to see a movie with my dad, I go see all of the movies with him. I'm all about the villain. I'm really not into the hero. So like, I love my girl, who's the hero, but my villain is like my favorite and she's not nice. But I like the villains because they have to have a complexity. There has to be a reason why. They are the hero of their own story. So I'm just more interested in darkness than light than always have been. Good question, Dad. <laughs> I did not plant that. <laughs> he did that. You have in this book that has beauty as a form of slavery, a matriarchal society. What is the reasoning behind having that kind of framing where it's the queen is actually chosen. I'm not trying to give anything away, I apologize. The queen is chosen to be this one thing and everyone else is allowed to change and yet you have these women that are forced to make those changes to other women. Well, I wanted to talk about spaces full of women and how women uphold systems of oppression. Because when we learn about slavery in this country, we always talk about the white men. We don't talk about the white women. And I wanted to talk about women who uphold these systems and how it's almost worse because then we turn on each other. And I wanted to talk about how whenever there's a fight with girls, the, the words fat, bitch, ugly are the first slurs, even if they don't apply to those, to you. The way we turn on each other and terrorize each other using the words of the oppressor in order to divide us, I wanted to sort of clean our own house and talk about that. In this past election, I was really bothered. I was going through my like last round of revisions during it, and I was very bothered by how women turned on each other with the, candidate of, with the candidacy of Hillary Clinton, and I wanted to dig into that. I wanted to know why we do that to each other and why behind every sort of man in a hood, right, he goes home to a woman. And I wanted to dig into that, and that was something that bothered me, and so that's why I dealt with a systems of oppression that are upheld by women and reinforced by them. We just have to clean out our closet. And I felt like talking about beauty, something that connects us all, our bodies connect us all. We are all consumed, whether we are fat or skinny, ugly or pretty, doesn't matter. We are all consumed. And something I learned from reading Roxane Gay and, and listening to her, doesn't matter. We are still, we are connected by that. And I thought using beauty would be the thing that would have all women come to the table, no matter what they looked like or their political ideology. So that's why, yeah. Yeah, it was great. Hi, my name is Trin. I just Hi. wanna ask, um, do you know the name of the woman on the book cover? And also, do you agree with me that she looks just like Taraji P. Anson? Everyone keeps saying that. They keep tagging Taraji too, and being like, your, your daughter's here. Um, I forgot her name. I follow her on Twitter. She's like 19, and she lives in Philly. And she's very sweet. I can find her on my Instagram, but she's lovely. Oh, they put her name in there? Oh, no, don't, don't out Disney. Um, but no, I forgot her name, but she's wonderful, and I follow her on Twitter. I'll have to look it up, but she's wonderful, and she's 19. And yes, they did style her to make her, it's her, the way her face looks when she turns. Yeah, it's the expression. It's fierce. Oh, shit. Excuse me. <laughs> yeah. Will you tweet it out when you remember? I will, definitely. She's great. She's like 19 and, you know, living their life as a 19-year-old. The struggle. Yes. <laughs> Hi. Kazoko. Uh, you talked a lot about how this book and this cover 
kind of open doors for people and how you're looking back for the people that are coming after you. But in many ways, you as an author are opening doors for people and you are gonna be the shoulder that many young authors, the giant shoulders that people stand on. So if you could tell your younger self something that could help other brown authors coming after you, what would it be? Oh, Kasako, I'm gonna get you after this. We are gonna fight. Um, I would tell other writers coming behind me to read everything and know what you're talking about, always, so that you can't be denied, right? Know this industry inside and out, know the books that are published, know where your book will be in the bookstore, know the business, and then focus on your craft. Make it better than everything else that's out there. And focus on on that, on because that's all that you can control, really. You can know your stuff and have, make sure your story is good, so that when you come out in the world, people are always gonna say no. They're always going to give you bad reviews or whatever, but if you feel good and you know that you did everything you could, then nobody can tell you really anything. And I already know you're doing that. Because <laughs> Kasoko has a book that'll be coming out. I was gonna embarrass you. Next year, right, is it spring 2019? Summer night 2019. Yes. Yeah. What's the name of the book? Man? Is it? A place for wolves. It's called A Place for Wolves. If y'all want to check it out, come on, good read. I just want to add real quick uh, to that advice. Um, the other thing is like know everything, but also know yourself. Like. Because the truth of the matter is, a lot of the work that we do has everything to do with you just doing your thing. Like, do your thing, right? And, and I mean that like literally, like do your thing, right? Because the truth is, is that I, most of us who figure it out or who find our voices only find our voices by breaking the rules and by, by fighting against the academy and all the things that we're taught. A lot of this is gut work. I don't know how to use most of the punctuation that we're supposed to know how to use, but I trust myself and I know what feels good and sounds good. Like, know yourself, right? Like, do, know yourself and do your thing, and you'd be surprised how far that takes you. Anyone in the back also have questions? You can just come up. I'm gonna get him things. Okay. So, I'm 14, and in my eighth grade English class, we're learning about societal norms in um, the books The Giver, and we also read a short story called The Censors. Um, I don't know if you've read it, um, but did societal norms in books like or short stories like those really influence you in this one? I'm a former teacher and a former librarian, so I've read The Giver several times. Um, of course, societal norms, because I think of it as societal programming. And so what I like to do is and think about children's books and books for teens as tools and instruments for cultural programming and telling us the codes, who's pretty, who's ugly, who's powerful, who isn't. And um, yes, I feel like we are all soaked in that sort of ether and all of those issues. And books like The Giver dig into that. And I wanted to take the societal programming about bodies and talk about, and talk about that in my book. So I chose a specific lens. And that came from, you all should read him, Scott Westerfeld, who's the champ. He said, if you want to write fantasy, take, think of the world, pick, answer this question, what in the world does everyone want and what are they willing to do to get it? And that's how I figured out how to write this book. And I picked beauty. 
You gonna drink my water? <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> Hi, um, so I had a question. You've talked a lot about your inspiration for all the ideas for this book came from and the frustrations you've had and how to turn that into a story, which is incredible because I think a lot of people just get frustrated and it turns into chaos in our brains. Um, so to, to take that and turn it into something productive is amazing and mind-blowing. But I was wondering, when you set out to write a book and, and outline these things that you want to achieve, do you always know where it's going to finish or does the book ever become like a character in and of itself and like just are you ever surprised by where it goes yes um i'm a person that i can only they call them that like headlight writers i don't know if you've heard this before where i could i know there's plotters people who plot all the way through who are architects there are gardeners or pantsers who just sort of write until they figure out their way and i'm sort of in the middle um my writing partner, Sona, is a plotter and an architect, and I'm not allowed to write with her without having a plan. But since I wasn't writing with her for this, I'm a headlight writer. So I wrote, I picked like five or six things that I knew I wanted to do, and then I figured my way to connect those dots. Uh, I think Vic, my friend Victoria Schwab does that too. It's like five or six, and then I find a way to connect them, but I always know the beginning and I never know the ending. I turn in every draft without a tail. And then my editor's like, all right, this is how we're going to end it. I apologize for the ending of this book. Um, but that's, I, I try to let myself figure it out along the way. I just don't know when I start. What about you? Do you know everything? I know you don't know. Mm, I, I do uh, AQZ, you know what I mean? I know the beginning, I know the middle, I know the end. Um, and then I get busy. I always write uh, an extra chapter at the beginning and the end and throw both away. Um, so we always start a chapter late, we always end a chapter early, and the rest of it is sort of just figuring out. If it's not an adventure to me, it won't be an adventure to you. I get bored super, super easily. And when you plot it all out, sometimes it's like, oh, well, I already did this, so why write it? Yeah. I never thought, in, in school, when they had you outline, I used yeah. to be like, wait, you want me to do the work before I do the work? <laughs> you wasn't doing the work. Doing the work. Any other questions? And Tiffany Jackson has one in the back, too. She is the author of Allegedly and Monday's Not Coming. <laughs> yes, I did. So when, when you do the world building, mm -hmm. how much of that is front-loaded? How much of it do you know the rules of how the place works and, and the structure and the hierarchy, and how much do you get to a point? Do you ever get to a point where you say, oh, that's not going to work because the rule is this, and then that alters your... Does that make sense? It oh, does. The way you go through the rest of the story. Yes. Before I write any fantasy world, you have to figure out the rules of the magic. You have to know them because then you have to know magic has a price. Magic has limits. Otherwise, it's boring. If we could just do what we want without consequences, no, that doesn't make for good tension. So I always write out my rules of the magic and limits and what are the worst things that could happen. And then I sort of build everything from, from back from backwards from that point. So I answer that question, what is it that everyone wants in the world and what are they willing to do to get it? And then what are the rules? If I lived in this world and moved through it every day, what would that look like? Sometimes I'll just write out a day in the life of a, of a person in the world. Do you do that? What, how do you, contemporary writing too, you have to build a world. I have to believe you that I'm in Brooklyn or I'm in New York or I'm in DC. So how do you do it? Uh, I, I just treat every, simple, I just treat every um, 
every environment like a character and every character like an environment. So, and then you create relationship between that those two sort of par those two like paradigms, right? So, like if I'm talking about, you know, let's say we're in Brooklyn, or or let's say we're in D.C. Let's say we're in Northeast D.C. I would need to build this world. Like Northeast D.C. itself would have to be a character. It would have to have feeling. It would have to have uh, emotions. It would have to smell a certain way, and it would have to move a certain way and walk a certain way and talk a certain way, right? Uh, and then if I was the person, then the protagonist that I'm creating would have to be an environment. That environment would have to have places. It would have to have um, uh, movement within it, but it, within the, the person. It would have to have uh, uh, traffic within the person. It would have to have sound and noise and all these things. And then you create relationship between those two elements. So that's sort of, you know, my, my point. And you're a poet, so. Mm. All of that. <laughs> Tiffany Hello. Jackson. Ooh. Hi. Hi. Oh, She's an, a wonderful story. author, by the way. <laughs> Read her books. Thank Allegedly, you. Monday's Not Coming. Gosh, I know. She's, like, She's going to fight me later. <laughs> <laughs> um, so can you tell everyone uh, what is coming up next? And don't leave anything out, because you know you're really busy. Jason can start. <laughs> How might I'm going to get you later. Um, well, I have the sequel uh, to The Bells that'll come out around the same time next year. Oh, what am I allowed to talk about? Um, secrets. Um, I'm going to be announcing that I have a, a big middle grade series that'll be coming out. It's my answer to J.K. Rowling's and Hogwarts and being left out. Um, Magic School in the Sky with Brown Kids. Um, what else? Tiffany, what are you talking about? I've probably told her a bunch of stuff in her DMs, and now I can't remember because I've been on tour for five days. Um, lots of travel. Huh? Oh, yeah. So Sona and I have a project that will be coming out in 2020 called The Rumor Game. It's set in the D.C. area. It's about three girls and a rumor that gets out of control and sort of the price that you pay for gossip in high school, which was something huge when I was in high school, and it follows three girls from three different backgrounds. Um, and sort of the political sphere. And that comes out in 2020. What are you working on next? <laughs> uh, I've got the last two um, books in the track series. That's spring and fall. I've got a, children, a picture book that'll be announced in a couple of weeks probably that's coming out. I've got a book called For Everyone comes out in April. Um, adult novel I'm working on, magic book I'm working on, and some secret stuff that I can't talk about right now. Huh? And long way down. Uh, I mean, yeah, long way down might be a movie. Go, yeah, thanks, man. And, and Ghost is gonna be a TV show. So those are the, the TV show. The track track will be a TV show. So all that's happening, and um, yeah. So busy. <laughs> Just those things. Small, you know. Any final questions? Final question. Why series? Why is it that genre writers <laughs> never write single books? Almost always they write. It's, it's always more. You writing a series? You writing a track series? I know. It's been burning you up. You've been complaining. Terrible. I can never do it again. I'll never write another series. So if you like the track series, it's game over. Favorite. <laughs> No more, no more, no more. Why? What is the deal? Because the world is so big. And when you do the painful building, 
when you wait till you get into this magic, because those rules and that world. Look, look. Look, but when you dip all the way in, the world is so big that there are so many corners that you can explore, and the pain of building the world, there's so many stories that you can find in those spaces. And when you're a genre writer, I don't wanna be in your world for one book. Sometimes, like Holly Black does that to me. She'll give me like one book, like the coldest, uh, coldest girl in cold town. I was like, I want another one, but she can return to that world. I don't know, it's, um, it's tradition. The greats do it. Yeah, that second book burned me up. Also big, right? You gotta write 500 pages <laughs> yeah. more than one time about the same world. Yeah. And you're never like, yo, this is a slog. It, it is, but I know, and it hurts. It's painful. It's a pound of flesh. It's the pain cave. It's all those things. Imagination, y'all imagination is on a million. I just That's true. I don't have it. Months. We can't know yet. Because we will be negotiating a few more. Right. Business is how it works. That's true. Yeah, I mean there is a second one. Yeah. Congratulations. Mama Green. Um, I I think the reason why people write series or authors write series is because we want more. We want to, we want we love those characters. We want to see you know what happens at the end. You know, surely this isn't it. Yeah, you know what? Uh, that's why I know I'm not made for this because I would just be like, you should probably write the next book. <laughs> you can do it. You did it with track. It was a great series. And people have no idea the, the amount of stress. I know. And how rough it's been for me to write those books. Um, it's not fun. I haven't had a good time. I'm grateful. But, but why? Uh, what is it about staying in the world? Are you bored? Because uh, each character is so interesting. Uh, yeah, I'm good though. You know what it is? <laughs> you know what it is? I have, I have other, I have a gazillion other ideas, and yeah. I'm beholden. Like I'm stuck. I can't move on because when you're writing a series specifically for middle grade, yeah, for the little kids. When you're writing a series for middle grade, you have to get all the books out immediately. So I'm writing a gazillion books a year because I have to keep them coming before kids get out of middle school. Right. Before the kids who started those books get out of middle school, right? And it's just not it's just not it's just not cool. It's not conducive to positive and healthy sort of <laughs> like my mental health is like wow, like this is so that's why. Um are we good? Are we good? Two more okay. questions, perfect. Two more. Questions. Two more. Make them good, Mr. Pinkney. The family's coming through with the questions. <laughs> Congratulations. Thanks so much. I've known her since she was this big. I know. And I'm so proud of you. Thank you. She actually took care of my daughters when they were young. I did. Babysitter club. She was a babysitter. <laughs> I'm Jesse. And I used to hear you talk to my daughters and encourage them, and encourage them to be independent and free thinkers and 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 not worry about the outside world. I remember those those little nuggets you used to give to them, believe it or not. So my question to you, you talked about, you know, the all of these things that occurred when you were a preteen and a teenager and all the things you thought about your body and and fitting into, you know, society, particularly at your schools and and so forth. When did you really decide that you wanted to write a book about all of that? I mean, how long ago has it been? I mean, did, was this something that you've been thinking about since you were 20, 15? I didn't want to be a writer. I was just a reader. I wanted to be a teacher and a librarian, which I was. But when I studied the canon and I saw that there were so many children missing 
I felt like I needed to write into that. And I was actually forced. In my first master's program, they forced me to take a creative writing class. It was like so painful because I can't tell a story without telling the truth, which means I have to put a bit of myself into it. Otherwise, I can't sustain the effort that it takes to do the work. And it's so much work, as you were talking about. You have to reread and rewrite and redo over and over again. And I'm writing books that are four to 500 pages. So I didn't set out to be a writer. I set out to be a doctor and failed chemistry and then like return to books that I loved to read as a kid. And I just really felt like I needed to leave something behind for the little brown kids that didn't get to see themselves and, and see magic. And I wanted to do that. And that became part of my life's work. And then I met Ellen O. I don't know where she is, president and founder of We Need Diverse Books. She's hiding, she's like, don't bring me up. And it just all came together and I felt like this is what I need to be doing. To, this is what I want to leave behind when I, when I exit, are these stories. Um, these truthful stories about myself, about the world, and giving brown kids something to be excited about and something to have fun with. So, yeah, I don't know. I came to it late. I feel like I came to it late. Oh, Russ. Hey. Hey. Sorry for being late. Yeah. <laughs> um, you said a number of things. Uh, one thing that's really stood out, like as a writer and as a comedian, we, we, we say some of the same things you do in the capacity that like uh, no joke was ever finished. Mm -hmm. But how do you trust someone with the ending? Like that, there's no way I would give my jokes up to anybody. Yo. Like get up, <laughs> there's, there's not a chance. Like how do you, how do you, why do you trust someone with, with your baby? Well, when you have a good editor like he has, the best editor in the business. I feel like my editor is fantastic. There is a relationship and an intimacy that you have with this person because you're sending them pieces of yourself in manuscript form that are malleable, that are raw. And when I get to the end of a manuscript, I don't wanna see it. So I literally physically have been up pulling all-nighters for several days because I'm a perfectionist and I can't get it done. Yeah. He's always on time, I'm always late with it. I just don't plan it as well, and I'm obsessive. Again, I write about obsession, so I'm obsessive that I can't see it, I can't see the end. So I have to trust her, otherwise I can't do this work. I have to trust her that she can help me find my way. Right. And she sometimes she'll say, okay, you're scratching at three things. Here are three things to think about, here are three scenes we could do, but think about them and come back with something better than what I've sort of planted. She gives me seeds and then I sort of do what I wanna do. I don't want to be a bully, but I have one more question. Uh, this is the friends and family thing. Russ, <laughs> he's known me forever. No, I, I figured you would speak about it being a relationship because yeah. it is just command trust. But yeah. if it's going to be a relationship, then right, like how do you take care of yourself within that relationship? Like you know, both of you have spoke at length about the pain and like how arduous it is to write something. You know that and give a, a lot of yourself up. So how do you take care of yourself in that space? Oh, you answer. Well, uh, first, just really quickly, um, just so no one is, is disillusioned, uh, every writer, none of us write the books by ourselves. And, and, I, and I think we'd like to pretend that we do uh, because our name is on the cover, but all of us, including your favorites, have collaborators, and those collaborators are our editors. They really are the second writers. They, they really help us suss the whole thing out. It's just the way it works in our industry. Um, so first, just so we're clear, because I like to be, it ain't just us, you know. It, 
and shout out to the editors. They are editors here. Shout out to the editors. They they really are a part of that process in a very real way. In terms of self care and all of that, man, honestly, um, honestly, for me, I struggle terribly, terribly. And people who know me, which and people who people who know me and have invested in my life or who have seen the work, I mean, like. The truth of the matter is that the way that I work uh, is not healthy. The, um, the, the proliferation of work that I've been able to produce um, is not healthy. It's just not the way that it's supposed to be done. It's the way that I do it because of fear, because of uh, being hungry, right? because I've been broke, because I've struggled, because you always think that they're doing you a favor when you have an opportunity to live your dream. And the obsession, and that's somebody who, and you're a comedian, right? So you know this, the, the obsession that kicks in rooted in an insecurity of falling and failing uh, creates this life, creates this sort of strange um, cycle that so many of us live in and don't, and don't just don't, uh, admit, right? Um, what I've been trying to do as of late, one, I talk to a therapist every day, bro. Every day I talk to a therapist, right? If y'all don't have talk space, it's $150 a month. You could do it from your phone. You could talk to them twice a day, right? So while I'm on the airplane, I'm getting it out. Number two, I go swimming every morning. I'm in the pool, I'm getting in that water. I'm, I'm a black person, I believe in the power of, of water. Right? My mom, I'm from that, right? I'm from that, right? And, and so I get in the water, man. I get in the water and I move around and I swim and I use it to clear my head and to get things together. And three, I keep my friends close, like real, and my family really, really close to me, like my real friends, right? She called, check up on me. Everybody wants something from you when you on, right? They don't realize that you have nothing else but they're taking, and you're like, I don't have no more, right? But your friends call you, and they ask you how you doing. And that's enough for somebody to not call and say, hey, 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 I need, I need, I need. It's like, no, 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 how you doing? You eating, Jay? You sleeping? Taking care of yourself, right? Like, have you called your mom? Like, real stuff, right? These, so I keep my friends around me. I swim in the morning, try to be active, and I talk to somebody regularly. Um, so it works for me. But it ain't, it ain't it's hard, you know? Oh, definitely. Um, some of the similar things, it's also for letting yourself be okay with not getting everything done. I just can't get it all done. And then they have to wait. Um, Nikki Grimes, who's a wonderful poet, told me when I first met her, when I, before my first book came out, I was being rushed to get my manuscript in, staying up till four or five o'clock in the morning and crashing and burning. And I have a lot of, I had some health challenges that were exacerbated by not eating well and not sleeping. She said, why are you letting anybody rush you? Because your name is on that book and on that work and they have to wait. Nobody is going to die if your book does not come out on that date. She said, never let anyone rush you to the detriment of your health and your work because it is what you leave behind. And your editor can leave the, that house, your whole team can leave the publishing house. But to make the work important and make the work true and take your time to get to the truth. So now, deadline, schmedline. Like, I try my best, but I want, oops, sorry, editors. I, <laughs> I try to make sure that I'm taking care of myself. And like you said, I do a lot of complaining to Tiffany Jackson in the back in her text messages to this one. And I get it out. I probably should talk to someone and find someone to talk to, but in New York, there's a shortage of folks. Yeah. <laughs> I just signed up for Clear, because you told me to do that. That was a game changer for me. Yeah, and so I think just making sure that you can, I have to have my places where I can be petty 
and like let it out and just like not be judged. My petty, I live in a petty mansion and I have cottages that I rent out on my land. And I need to be able to have that space with my... <laughs> to, <laughs> I just need to be able to be myself and I need those spaces. I'm embarrassing Tiffany. Tiffany's like, oh no, oh no. But yeah, that's the honest. I've known him forever. You've known me for two decades. So, but yeah. Yeah. We give them a great round. Yay, thank you so much for coming. Live at Politics and Prose is a co-production of The Bookstore and Slate.com. For information about upcoming Politics and Prose events, visit politics-prose.com. And please let us know what you think of this program. Our email is podcasts at slate.com.